Good morning. Welcome to Bible study this morning, and a special welcome to those who are listening on AM850 KFUO in St. Louis and worldwide on KFUO.org. A few news and notes before we begin today. The first is, if you did not grab a handout, we do have them over on uh, the gym bleachers over there. And then uh, you may notice uh, there's a little bit different title for the class today, and we're still looking at the lectionary readings that we, as a church, um, will be going through next week, but they do... Uh, differ from the ordinary lectionary readings that would be assigned for January 17th in Series B of the lectionary. Uh, And I'll explain as we go through them perhaps uh, why uh, that difference exists for next week. And I hope that as we go through them you see um, the rich uh, goodness and great uh, reminder that God has for us in the readings that we will be looking at next weekend. Um, But before we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we pray that you would continue to guide our lives. You would guide them in grace and in mercy, in patience and in forgiveness. We pray that uh, as your people, we would be a light to a world uh, filled with hate, a world filled sometimes with violence, with frustration, with anger, with strife, that uh, your peace would not only be on your people, but through your people, the the world would know uh, your great love for the world. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So ordinarily, uh, next week in the readings would have been from 1 Samuel chapter 3, which is God's call to Samuel. And you may remember it's when Samuel keeps going to Eli and saying, Eli, did you call me? And Eli says, no, I didn't. Go back to sleep. Uh, And then Samuel eventually realizes that God has called him. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, it was uh, Paul's a warning to them to not give in to sexual immorality because they were bought with a price. And then in the Gospel of uh, John chapter 1, it would have been Philip and Nathaniel's call by Jesus. Um, but the readings that are in front of you and the readings we'll be looking at next week are the assigned readings for a day of prayer and supplication, uh, an observance of a day of prayer and supplication in our lectionary system. And given... Uh, not only the events of the past week, but also I think given the year that we just had and the start to this year and kind of the craziness going on, uh, collectively thought it might be a, a good idea to observe these, uh, not only observe this day, but go through and, and uh, use God's word assigned for that observance. So we're going to begin with our Old Testament lesson, which comes from the book of Joel. And uh, Joel was a prophet sometime, the best guess we have is definitely after the reign of Jehoshaphat. So we're looking uh, after 800 or so uh, BC, so in the 700s or 600s, maybe even a little uh, longer than that. And Joel's a fairly short book, and it's a book that doesn't have um, perhaps a lot of uh, cheery (laughs) passages outside of what we read here in Joel chapter 2. And that's why I think what we read from Joel chapter 2 is a great reminder. In fact, one of Joel's jobs as a prophet was to proclaim the day of the Lord. And if you remember from when we had Zephaniah as a reading in Advent, uh, the day of the Lord, when the Old Testament, when the prophets declare the day of the Lord, uh, they remind the people this is not a day for you to um, be cheerful about because it's going to be great and in English often translated awesome, but that is truly awe-causing or terrifying, the great and terrifying or awe-causing day of the Lord. And so that also in Joel is the context uh, just before we get to Joel 2, verse 
12. And so when we read at the start of Joel chapter 2, verse 12, yet even now, it is in the context of the incoming day of the Lord, the impending day of the Lord. And it's one of the reasons that this lesson is actually one of the Ash Wednesday readings as well. That as we remember um, that it is, uh, we are dust and to dust we shall return. Um, We remember that that day of the Lord is by our sin, something we should have great fear towards. But because of Christ, we know we will still stand and stand as God's own people on that day. But in Joel chapter 2, he's talking to the people of God saying, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. And that word return plays an important role in a lot of the uh, Old Testament prophets' proclamation to the people. And the Hebrew word is shuv. And the word return could also be considered repent. Uh, I had a professor once explained it like this to me, that it's like a dog having to go back to its owner with its tail between its legs. That you needed, you were doing something you shouldn't have been doing, and now you got to do a 180 and face the reality that you need to return to what God calls you to do. So when we hear that word return, it's not just, hey, come back here, guys, but truly, no, repent. Return, repent. Uh, return to the Lord with all your heart. And as Americans, sometimes we can think of what's in our heart, and we think just primarily feelings. A Hebrew didn't quite have that understanding when they used the word heart. It was truly an all-encompassing thing. It was with all you had. So return not only physically, um, but also with your minds. You know, it wasn't just a feelings-based thing, like, oh, I was mad at God, now I'm happy. All right, I'll return and go be happy with God. But truly, it's a physical thing with your body. It's a mental and emotional thing with your mind. With all you have, return to the Lord. In return with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. All acts of worship indicating the repentance of the one who has sinned against the Lord. When someone would fast or someone would mourn, they would do so in repentance. And that's one of the reasons it's used for uh, Ash Wednesday is one of the Old Testament Traditions is to adorn yourself with sackcloth and ashes. That's an indication of someone who is returning, repenting to God. That's why in times of great calamity, often the, the people would adorn themselves with sackcloth and ashes. That this is a state of humility. And in verse 13, rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, you might say, wait a minute, you just said they're supposed to adorn themselves with things like sackcloth and ashes. But what's God's point here? You can do that. But it is not just the action of putting on this uh, ceremonial repentance that God requires. But truly return, repent with your heart. Not that we, it's inappropriate to do so with garments, but not just your garments. It is more important that you return with your hearts than with any sort of outward sign. And we're going to see this further in our gospel lesson from Matthew 6 in just a moment. But I think it's a great reminder for us as well because sometimes we can do that. We can pay God just a little bit of lip service, right? Oh yeah, I know, I shouldn't have been doing that. When in reality, we may not truly be thinking, what, what is our heart saying right now? What do we truly think about this? Are we just going along with this because we know this is what we're supposed to say? 
Or is this what we as a people confess to believe? You know, when we say, I am a poor, miserable sinner, do we just go through the motions? Or do we actually confess with our heart, with our mind, God, I myself am a poor, miserable sinner, unworthy of any grace or mercy? And we get that uh, return again. Return to the Lord your God. It's a, a specificity to this. You're not just going to return to anyone, but to Yahweh, your creator, the Lord. You'll return to the one who created you, who made you and all things, the one who has called you his own people, who has made you a covenant people. Return to the Lord, your God. And here's probably the most famous line, or, uh, verse or section of verses in Joel. If you were to say, you know, recite a a verse from Joel. I don't know how many people would be able to just off the top of their head think of anything, but if you said this verse and said it was from Joel, most people would be familiar with this. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And here the prophet gives the people of God a reminder of who the Lord their God is. That though uh, they ought to return and repent because they have sinned, he is not a God that is going to uh, reject them in their repentance, but rather be gracious and merciful to them. That in repentance when we go to God, he is slow to anger, that he is abounding in steadfast love, that he relents over disaster. One of the interesting parts in Joel is that one of Joel's jobs, part of the proclamation of the day of the Lord, proclamation against the people for their sins, is he had to proclaim to them as a prophet, there will be a plague of locusts. Probably wasn't the proclamation he hoped to give to them, and yet that's exactly what God told Joel as a prophet, you need to tell the people. That because you have sinned, I am sending a plague of locusts. So when we read relents over disaster, it's not just ambiguous what sort of disaster might be coming, but truly um, that proclamation that if you're not repentant, if you don't return to the Lord, there will be a plague of locusts and devastation will come over you. Now, I've never seen a plague of locusts, but I believe it was a couple years ago, there was in Africa a, a plague of locusts. And you can Google Um, images of it and I will tell you what it is a terrifying sight because there's hundreds of thousands if not millions of these insects and they come and they just devour everything and so it's not just oh there's going to be a lot of annoying bugs but truly your crops your livelihood perhaps even your homes they're going to be destroyed and then verse 14 we read who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Now here, this is important, these two verses, because it's indicative of who is supposed to be returning or repenting. It's the whole nation. It's the whole people of God. 
And then it's one of the reasons he goes into such detail as to different uh, age groups or even uh, different people at different stations in life. So you have uh, a trumpet being blown, which is what would announce a battle, for example, or an invasion, or a national um, announcement. So when the trumpet blows in Jerusalem, it's not just, oh, hey, look, there's the trumpet of the day. But everyone knows, oh, we need to pay attention. Pay attention and set apart or go ahead and do a fast, a solemn assembly where you gather all the people. So the elders, those who uh, are considered the, the wise of the nation, the children, even the nursing infants. So those two words, there's two groups. You think about elders and nursing infants. That's an embodiment of everybody. And then to say even the bridegroom and the bride ought to leave their chamber means no matter what you've got going on, no matter how important you might think what you are doing is, how big a day it is, no, first and foremost, you need to repent. You need to return. In verse 17, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Now there's a couple interesting things in verse 17 about that confession. That as a nation, they're to come together and make a plea, make a return, a repentant plea to God and say, Spare your people, Make not your heritage, that is your inheritance, a reproach. Now, you may be thinking, well, now that starts to sound a little bit even like what we talked about if you were at the 8 o'clock this morning with baptism. Inheritance, your heritage. What are the people of God, his covenant people? You remember his promises to Abraham, to Moses, to David. There was no end date on this. This is a people who are supposed to be given this forever. And so if they're destroyed What is the plea the people are to make? Lord, you have promised us as your covenant people, as people of your covenant, make us not a reproach amongst the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? In those days, there weren't really atheists. There were people of different faiths, but everyone, uh, all the surrounding nations, had their own idea about what they were supposed to do. And Israel's looked different. One, it was monotheistic. In those days, many of the religions, almost all of the religions, were totally polytheistic. That you had a God for everything here, there, and elsewhere. And so Israel was different, and people knew this. That's why oftentimes when someone comes to Israel and perhaps is asking for mercy, they appeal not just to whoever your God may be, but they say, the Lord your God. Because they knew who Israel worshipped. And so by making this plea to be spared in repentance, uh, there is the reality that, uh, God, let not your name be uh, slandered amongst the nations. Let not people say, where is that God of Israel, that God of Jacob? And in verse 18, we read, The Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. That in your repentance, in your plea, God answers your call. God answers your prayer. 
and you will be satisfied and no longer a reproach. Now that Old Testament lesson from Joel is excellent for Ash Wednesday and excellent for a day of prayer and of supplication, a day where we can focus on uh, not only a reminder for ourselves, but for all Christians that truly God does hear us when we call. And that we pray as Christians, thy will be done, Lord. And that may not always be our own will, but truly we still pray and confess and believe that God's will is done, that God does hear us, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And it really goes really nicely with uh, Psalm 4, which is the psalm of the day, which is the lesson we're going to look at next. But before we get there, are there any questions on Joel chapter 2? All right. Then we'll move on to the psalm of the day, Psalm 4. Um, And actually, Psalm 6 would ordinarily be the selected psalm for a day of uh, prayer and supplication. But I love Psalm 4 so much, I kind of ask if uh, we could switch it out and uh, and talking with Dr. Bender and other pastors, they agreed it was a good idea. So we're going to go with Psalm 4 for next weekend. Uh, And it's a Psalm of David where he pleads, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And again, I say he pleads. It's not a command. Even though in English it kind of comes across as David's trying to tell God what to do. And the Hebrew is a little bit more clear that this is, uh, it's an important plea but it's still a plea that he's not saying, God, do this for me now, but rather, God, would you do this for me now? God, would you answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness? And he appeals to what God has already done for him. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? This is one of the interesting parts about this psalm in verse 2 here is there's some ambiguity is, is this God saying to David and saying to the people, oh man, how long shall my name be put to shame? Or is this David uh, clean before God? And in the Hebrew, there's some ambiguity. And you'll see later on in the psalm, the speaker, who is uh, speaking and also who is, uh, who the person receiving the word is changes. So David addresses the people. And David also addresses God. So there is some ambiguity, but I think both work, and both work um, quite easily. That It could be David saying, O men, how, uh, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? But it could also be God saying, O men, O people, O covenant people I have chosen, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord himself has set apart the godly for himself. And here's where David addresses those, um, in not only in the congregation, but perhaps even his enemies, that it's a statement of fact that the Lord hears when I call to him. It is David's confession of faith that when I make my plea unto the Lord, he hears what I'm saying. And that's something that uh, if we all could be as bold as David with that statement of fact, right? I think we've all wondered, did God, God, did you even hear that prayer? Because I am so desperate right now, and yet I don't think you're maybe listening. We all have moments of doubt like that, and yet uh, David's reminder for us is a great one because it is so direct and uh, absolute that God listens. The Lord himself hears when I call. 
We read in verse 4, I think probably maybe the greatest reminder for us in the, the last year or so, be angry and do not sin. I know there's a lot to be frustrated about right now. I think uh, we saw that not only in our nation over the course of this last week, but also in our own communities, in our homes, whether it's uh, COVID, whether it's just the uncertainty of everything, whether it's uh, everything from uh, an election to how long are there going to be restrictions to people following or not following those restrictions to uh, everything in between. There's a lot that can frustrate us right now. And I don't know a single person who has said, well, it just seems to be a real peaceful, stress-free time the last 10 months or so. (laughs) And I love this verse. I feel like this is one of those verses, if we could, uh, you know, highlight it more often than not, we'd be reminded in our own lives uh, in a very positive way how God calls us to act. Because we're allowed to be angry. It is not as if anger is bad. It's not as if you have to pretend like you're not frustrated or you're not angry about a particular situation. You can be angry, but God reminds us, be angry and do not sin. I don't know what that would have looked like over the course of the past week, but I don't think it would have probably looked like what we saw, right? You can be angry. In fact, when people are angry, don't diminish the fact that they're angry. That never helps the situation. I've learned that. Don't say, I don't think you should be so upset about that. That doesn't really help, right? I think we all have probably had moments uh, where we've learned from that. But when we are angry, you're still called to not sin in that anger. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Uh, And I want to be clear here. He's not saying you can never express your frustration or your anger. But what does it mean to think about pondering your own hearts and on your own beds? What might that indicate the, the person angry is doing? Praying. And even just taking some time to remove themselves from the situation. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Uh, That's why I love the Psalms and I love uh, the the poetic works because there's so so many great reminders in them that don't act rashly. I I think back times when I've been frustrated and if you would have given me 24 hours to sit on that frustration or pray about that frustration, I'm pretty sure I would have acted differently (laughs) than maybe I, I did. And here the psalmist David is reminding us, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Not that you don't express your anger, but take some time. Be in prayer. Take it to God before you act out rashly. Verse 5, offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. And again, this is David's encouragement for the people. To offer your sacrifices to God right sacrifices, meaning you don't go to God and say, now give me that, God. I've done my part. You now do. It's not a quid pro quo relationship. But rather, make sacrifices out of your appreciation, your thankfulness, your love, your trust, your fear of the Lord. And see what he does and trust in him completely and just see what he does in our lives. And then in verse 6, we get a little bit of a rhetorical device, a, a, a question that the people were asking God. There are many who say, who will show us some good? One of the things that's really interesting about that to me is I wonder how often in our own lives and we can be tempted to think something like that, right? When are things just going to get better? When are things going to turn around? 
Who's going to actually be the person I can trust? What is the good we ask God to do? Or maybe even better put, what is the good we sometimes can sinfully demand of God? And when I say good, I put it in quotation marks because it's usually what's good in our own heart. What we have determined is uh, what God ought to be doing. And so we make this demand, you know, when are you going to show us some of your goodness, O Lord? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And then the last two verses of this psalm are David's confession and his response to that question and to the people. So David says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It's a great reminder of where, or maybe better put, in what, or in whom, is your joy. Is your joy just in material prosperity? In this psalm, it's indicated by those who would say the greatest joy would be having an abundance of grain and wine. A material prosperity, a material joy. And so David reminds not only himself, but to the congregation that hears that you have put more joy in my heart, that God has placed that joy in my heart than anyone has when their grain and wine abound. That we're reminded as Christians specifically that in Christ, God has lifted the light of his face upon us. And we say that uh, in the benediction, that the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord lift up his face upon you. That's not hope he does it, but rather God in Christ has lifted his face to you. And that in Hebrew is indicative of having favor. I should have probably started with that because it's not something we talk about, right? Like, boy, you have an interview today. Hopefully the person that's interviewing you lifts up their face to you. <laughs> but in, uh, in the Hebrew, it's indicative of the favor of God, uh, his goodwill towards the people. And in Christ, God has lifted the light of his face to us. And it's in the word and promise of Christ that God gives us a joy that surpasses all understanding. Uh, I'd say a joy and a peace, which is the word that's used in verse 8, that in peace I will both lie down and sleep. And we're reminded of Philippians 4 that uh, the peace of God transcends all understanding. And as I made mention, I think back in November, that means sometimes we have to admit this peace doesn't make sense. This joy that we have may not make sense to what is going on in the world or what even uh, our neighbors may say, that shouldn't cause you joy. You've had a really tough month or maybe a tough 2020 or tough start to 2021. And it's also a reminder that joy, true joy, godly joy is a gift that we receive, not something material that we get for ourselves. While it's fine, it's 100% okay to get joy from material things. We all have things that we like, whether it's a a favorite sweatshirt or a favorite pair of shoes or even a favorite place to go out to eat or whatnot. Our ultimate joy is never in the material things that God has himself blessed us in, but rather it's the joy of 
God through his Holy Spirit. That's why I love that joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians. That one of the fruits of knowing who God is and what he's done for you in Jesus is that you have a joy that surpasses all understanding. So that is uh, Psalm 4. I think it goes along very nicely with what we read uh, from the prophet Joel. Are there any questions on Psalm 4 before we look at 1 John chapter 1 and 2? No. All right. Well, then let's go to our epistle reading. So that's, and we're going to end with the gospel uh, reading from Matthew 6. So 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Uh, it's important to remember what 1 John starts with, which is a confession that what John is about to say is what his eyes have seen, his ears have heard, his hands have touched. So that when he says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, it's not just something we heard along the way, but truly these ears, the ears, the hands, the eyes that I have saw these things happen. Saw this light in the world. So that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. One of the traits of a Johannine writing, both the gospel and the epistles, is this idea of light versus darkness. Um, in uh, Genesis 1, as we read uh, as the Old Testament lesson for today, we read that God created and said, let there be light, and there was light. It's a little different in the Old Testament and other writings, but jo in Johannine writing, in John's writing, it is explicit. Light is good and godly and righteous. Darkness is sinful, is the flesh, is of Satan. So, in John, you can make that kind of distinction immediately. When you hear light, you're going to hear good. And when you hear darkness, uh, you're going to hear something bad. So God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That when we walk in the light, we, there is a connection. You are connected. You are not alone. You are not by yourself. And that's one of maybe the great reminders that can come to us, especially in the midst of a pandemic where so often isolation has been um, a necessity or even a mandate for how we need to live our lives, that truly being a part of the body of Christ means you are not alone. That when you walk in the light of God as he is light, you have fellowship with one another. And it's why John so often uses words like uh, dear brothers or dear brothers and sisters. Not because these are all his physical brothers, but to indicate there is that connection. You, nothing can take away that connection. Not six feet, <laughs> certainly not a mask, certainly not having to be isolated for two weeks or however long, that you have fellowship with one another. And then through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, you are cleansed from all sin. Not only do you have that connection with one another, but you have, most importantly, that connection with Christ, which gives you 
the connection with God, a connection that should have been cut off because of your sin, and yet because of Christ's blood cleanses you from all sin. So if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now this is something when we have confession and absolution corporately, we say as the exhortation, a reminder that if we're going to confess, um, come to confession and try and say, I I don't think I've been sinful this week, God. Um, We are only deceiving ourselves. We're not deceiving God, and I don't really think we're going to deceive those around us, right? Uh, That truly, if if we say we have no sin, we are lying to ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But then the great reminder we have in that exhortation is what comes next in verse 9. That if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I think that's an interesting addition that we sometimes maybe uh, forget about is that just after we're reminded that, there's a kind of a, uh, a, a prologue, so to speak, to this short confession that not only do you deceive yourselves, but if you were to go around trying to say you have no sin, you make God himself a liar. Because it is God who has reminded us that all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. So if you want to say that you're not part of that group, well, then you're saying that God himself is a liar. And if God you truly believe that God is lying, well then, his word is not in you. And then at the start of chapter 2, and this really all goes together, so I'm glad that uh, we have this section from chapter 2, and don't just end it at chapter 1, that chapter 2, verse 1 is, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Again, it's not that we go then with a license to sin. It's not that, okay, so if we confess all these sins, it doesn't matter what I do. In fact, John says specifically, I'm writing not so that you sin, but so that you would not sin. But when you do sin, and he says, uh, if anyone does sin, the implication here, given what has just come before it, is, and you all will sin. It's not... If and if not, it's no, you will. But if anyone sins, when anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Christ Jesus, the righteous one. And that word advocate goes uh, hand in hand with what comes next in verse 2, that he is the propitiation for our sins. Not only for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means an atoning sacrifice. It means someone who paid the punishment for you. One set up to take the punishment that someone else had coming. And that's why that word advocate and propitiation go hand in hand. Because in Christ's sacrifice, he, as we read from Romans 6 today... We are baptized into his death and therefore baptized into his life. That as one baptized into the name of the triune God, you are connected indelibly with Christ himself. 
And that's a very special reminder uh, today as we celebrate the baptism of our Lord in our services today, but also every day that it's not just up to you, that God is your advocate. God himself through Christ Jesus advocates on behalf of you. The righteous one, the one God sent to be righteous, when you specifically were unrighteous, he is the propitiation for your sins. And so all these concepts that we talk about really go together very nicely. That not only is there a fellowship, a togetherness that is created through those who trust in the name and in the work of Jesus Christ, but there very truly is um, a life a life that is undeserved, a life that is different, a life that truly does change everything. And that last part of 2 verse 2, that it's not only for us, but for also the sins of the whole world. That's why we take things like missions so seriously, and we always should. That while as Christians we celebrate the fellowship we have with one another, it's not a country club sort of fellowship. It's not a limited membership sort of thing. We want to take that great news that we have, that news that you have an advocate before God, that the righteous one, God in the flesh, would die for you is for all people. And not because you deserve it, but because that's how much God loves all of you. And not because you're unsinful, but because specifically when you do sin, you know that God himself is still for you in your confession and repentance of those sins. So, you know... That's the epitome of light versus darkness. That God, what is the light of God? It's undeserved grace and mercy through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on behalf of us. And you look at and contrast that with how the world so often treats not only God, but even sometimes what Jesus has done. Uh, Who would say, oh, Jesus must just be this wise moral teacher. Maybe he's got some tidbits I can remember to motivate myself today. And that's where it ends. Or you contrast that with the darkness that would say, well, Jesus is just one of the many options you can turn to. Or the darkness that would say, well, did he really rise from the dead? That is the darkness that the world tries to portray God and Christ as. And we're reminded very explicitly in 1 John um, that it's not that way. And in fact, if those who are reading this for the first time had any doubts. It's why John says, this is what my own eyes have seen. My ears heard. My hands touched. I am an eyewitness to these things. And it's a great reminder for us that we also are witnesses, that we can trust not only in what John says in First John is God's word, but to the world we are witnesses. Uh, there was a lot that happened this week where I don't know if we always put on the best witness <laughs> Uh, especially given some of the flags that were flying or whatnot over the course of the past week. And I think it's a great reminder that as Christians, we are, like John, witnesses to that light of God that would save us, not because we're perfect or always say the right things, but in fact just the opposite, because we're so imperfect and so sinful and so often act sinfully. All right. Any questions on 1 John? Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. And I'm going to read for you a little bit of the surrounding context here because it helps tie in. This is the last of three different sections of Matthew 6 where Jesus implores those listening to the Sermon on the Mount to not be hypocrites. So if we go to the start of Matthew 6, uh, 
we read in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. Here's the first one. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees it in secret will reward you. So the first of these three uh, reminders of, uh, I guess, encouragements to not be hypocritical is in your charity and how you give and love to others. And I like that. I love that. And now don't let your left hand know what your right is doing. Meaning, do it. But don't make sh- don't go and tell everyone what you're about to go do. Just go do it because that's who you ought to be. That's who God calls us to be. And then in starting at verse 5 of Matthew 6, uh, we get Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus say, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. So that's the second. Uh, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What does Jesus mean in this second section? It's pretty uh, straightforward, right? When we pray, when we go to God, again, it is not to just be seen by others. And in those days, there was this thought that the more eloquent, the more long-winded, the more phrases or clever sayings you could add to a prayer, the more inclined a God would be to listen. If you remember anything about the the Roman or the Greek gods and and that system, they had a lot of human quality. And so one of the things they tried to do is through the the loveliness of words, uh, appeal to them. That if you speak or pray it um, in a way that is attractive to the ears of the gods, therefore they would listen. So when he calls out the Gentiles specifically, that's what he's talking about, that there are people who were professional prayers, so so to speak, in the sense that they had all these eloquent phrases, or probably a deep, you know, great voices, iconic voices, voices that would bellow out so that the gods would be more, quote-unquote, inclined, at least what they believed, to hear. And Jesus reminds us that's not how the true God, the one and only God of heaven and earth, operates, that he doesn't ask you to go pray and be loud in the street corners or make sure that everyone sees it, but go into your room if you have to, in secret. And just like the giving to the needy, don't let your right hand or your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Go to your room and in secret, lift up your prayers uh, to God, your Father. And 
Mean what you pray. If you notice, one of the one part that he highlights after that is what? Forgive us our trespasses as, you, as we forgive others. Or forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. You better mean that if you're going to pray that. Is Jesus' emphasis there. And that's a tough one, right? That is, that is not the one uh, I don't think, especially when we know we've been wrong, that is the, that is the one that is, eats at us almost a little bit. But it's a great reminder that uh, similar to the unmerciful servant, the one who was forgiven the great debt and then goes and enacts a harsh punishment on a far, far minuscule in comparison debt, just like that, Jesus is reminding us that uh, when we would say to someone, I can't forgive you for that ever, is that how you want God to look at you? And of course, our answer is uh, in humble uh, pleading, no, absolutely not. And then we get to our section for next weekend, which is 16 through 21, which is two distinct sections. But again, they, it, the, this is the third of those three uh, hypocritical warnings or encouragements to not be hypocritical. And this one is in regards to fasting. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. What kind of pops into my head with this is thinking of being at a gym or something, there's the one guy in the corner lifting weights, but wanting everyone to know how hard he's straining, you know, to get up those weights, uh, or something to that nature. And obviously if you're really straining, you know it, and it but there are those who maybe uh, milk that a little bit for attention. And that, that at least is what the image that pops into my head when I think of what it would mean to disfigure one's face in the sense of fasting, of saying, oh, oh, it is so tough. It, let me tell you, it, oh, I've not eaten a thing, you know. So don't make it about being gloomy like the hypocrites that disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Uh, you may have noticed in those other two sections that I read previous from Matthew 6, there's that similar phrase, they have received their reward. It's a great reminder that if what we're looking for is the, the, the uh, compliments of men, what we're looking for is the approval of men, the pat on the back, of, great job, buddy, and that's why we're praying, that's why we're being charitable, that's why we're fasting or devoting ourselves to God and his word. If that's why we're doing it, that will be the reward we get. Uh, and sadly, so often, that's where perhaps people's belief in God ends. That what they want is everyone to know how hard um, they pray. Or they want to know, people to know only how much they're doing for others. And it's a reminder that, no, that's not about any of that. If people find out, great. After all, I just prayed before we started this service. I wasn't, didn't go and do that in secret, or before we started this Bible study, I didn't do that in secret. If we pray together, fantastic. But it is never for the sake of seeing people pray, or people seeing you pray, I should say. And likewise, if you're fasting or devoting yourself to God's word, it is not that people can't see it, but that if you do it like the hypocrites, to be seen by others, then find that will be your reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret 
will reward you. So we ask ourselves, is what we do for God for God, or is it for men? And it's a great reminder that, no, it ought to always be out of the the great thankfulness we have for what God has done for us. One of the interesting parts about that word hypocrites, and in the Greek it's upokristos, where we get the word hypocrite, is it was quite literally the play actors. And if you think about the plays, uh, the tragedies and the comedies of Greek theater, uh, they'd often have a mask. And that mask would, you know, they would just switch out the mask to change their mood. And so uh, that's a great image, I think, for us when we're thinking about why we are doing what we do. When we pray, are we just trying to put on the praying mask, like the hypocrites, like the actors, uh, so that it can be seen that we're praying? Or are we lifting our requests to God? And especially on a day where the focus is on prayer and supplication, we don't just do this as a vain attempt of, oh, look how humble we're going to be. We're going to pray on behalf of everyone. No, we truly do these things. We truly say, Lord, be with our nation. Lord, be with the doctors who are working so tirelessly. Lord, be with those who are struggling with isolation. Lord, be with those no matter who they voted for. (laughs) Lord, Be with your people. Be with the people I like. Be with the people I don't like. And that's why this is such a great gospel lesson, because ultimately it's a reminder that we don't just do that to put on a pretty face and say that's what we're supposed to do. But rather we ought to truly, in our hearts, similar to going back to to Joel, return in our hearts with all that we have to this attitude. Repent. I admit, I don't think any of us could say we've been perfect at this over the past 10 months since coronavirus started, right? There's been a lot of emotion, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, a lot of differing opinions, a lot of division, a lot of strife, a lot of turmoil. And that was before the election even hit. <laughs> and that's only furthered the, the frustration, the anger that many people have. That next week as we go into a day of observation of prayer and supplication, we truly do lift these requests to God, not as a vain attempt to be, uh, you know, seen to be so great and humble, but as a true supplication, a true request, a true prayer that God, uh, let your will be done, and especially through me. And then finally, we get to the second section of this Matthew 6 passage. And while it is a separate focus, it's kind of the foil to what we just read. And I say foil because uh, it starts with, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal. When those who would seek to do charity or to pray or to devote themselves to God for the sake of worldly approval do so, their treasures are laid up on earth. And so while it is separate, it's not completely separate. Um, and so often we just take that and make it a, a financial thing. And while there is certainly a financial component to it, that if money is just where our focus is, if that's where earthly possessions are, where our treasures are, then yes, moths and thieves, rust will decay. But even more than that, if that's where our faith is, if, the, if what we treasure in our faith is just the earthly benefits or the earthly approval we may or may not receive for it. If that's where our focus is, well then we're missing the point. That we are truly to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in 
and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That with God's promise for you, it's contrasted by the things, the treasures of this earth that are so easily destroyed. As we've learned this year, can in an instant, seemingly, be taken from us. And yet, God's promises, there's nothing that can separate you from them. That's the Romans 8 reminder that we read on New Year's Eve each year, that not life, nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor things to come, nor things of this present age can ever separate us from the love of God. The treasure that God has for us in his son, the treasure that God has laid up for us in heaven, that should everything in this world go away, that treasure will never be destroyed. Uh, And that's something that we can always uh, be reminded of because that's such an easy temptation to fall into. Uh, I know uh, you all know how much I love sports and that the NFL playoffs are happening this weekend. I sure would love my team to win, but if that's where my treasure was, well, I'd be sorely disappointed either this week or eventually whenever they lose their next game, right? And yet, so often we've seen a world where not only is that what people's lives, Christians' lives can become about, but even entire congregations, their focus can be on the things of this world. Whether it's an election, whether it's being able to be masked or unmasked, whether it's being able to do things this particular order, when truly our treasure, our great joy, the greatest gift God has given us is that advocate, is that atoning sacrifice, is that one who goes to God on behalf of us and who connects us with one another, but most importantly, with God. So those are the four lessons for next weekend. Uh, Are there any questions before we close for today? All right. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I pray that you would take your word and impart it in our hearts. Uh, Impart it in our hearts so that we not only uh, would know what your word says, but live out uh, your will for us in that word. To love our neighbors as we love ourselves. To be a people who seeks to give generously, to pray unceasingly, to be devoted to you, not so that we get the approval of others, but because of our thankfulness for the great gifts that you have given to us. Chief among those is your son, Jesus Christ, who is our advocate, who is the propitiation for our sins. We pray that you would continue to guide and bless us in this one true faith, and that in all things we would look to serve you according to your holy will. And it's in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.